we are thankful to be able to worship the Lord. Aren't you glad to be in God's house? Amen. Well, some of you. Okay, let's try that again. Aren't you glad to be in God's house? Amen. Amen. That's a little bit better. Okay. One more time. Are you glad to be in God's house? Amen. Amen. That's good. That's good. That's what I like to hear. Now, we're coming to a close in Judges. Boy, what a book, right? Oh, man. It has been something else. Do you remember a person by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer? He was uh, Dahmer, Dahmer. He was interviewed in February 1994 by Stone Phillips for Dateline NBC. Remember? He was identified as a serial, serial killer. And he had believed that humanity was on earth by purely natural causes and that death ended everything. He said that if there was no God, then why should he modify his behavior? What kind of behavior did he have? Well, he said, why shouldn't he kill and cannibalize his victims? So he killed 17 people. In 1950, go back quite a few years, in 1950, there were two brothers that were very popular. They were the Everly Brothers. They were a singing group. They were a heartthrob for these young ladies, you know. And they came up with a little song that said in 1957, Wake Up Little Susie. Let me read it. I'm not going to try and sing it for you. Amen. Wake up, little Susie. Wake up. Wake up, little Susie. Wake up. We've both been sound asleep. The movie's over. It's 4 o'clock. And we're in deep trouble. Wake up, little Susie. Wake up. Well, what are we going to tell your mama? What are we going to tell your pa? What are we going to tell our friends when they say, ooh, la, la? Wake up, little Susie, wake up. Well, I told your mama that you'd be in by 10. Well, Susie, baby, looks like we goofed again. Wake up, little Susie. We got to go home. Wake up, little Susie, wake up. Well, wake up, little Susie, what was it about? It was about their reputation, wasn't it? And what was so bad about their reputation? Well, they didn't want it to be messed up. They had been watching a movie and they fell asleep. And they woke up and it was way late. And they were wondering, what can we tell? Your mom and your pa and also, what will other people think? Wow, how did we get from there to 1994 when someone says, Why shouldn't he kill and cannibalize his victims so he killed 17 people? Well, a society, as we look at our society today, can go from worrying about not having a chaperone and staying up too late to not worrying about cannibalizing and taking lives because moral absolutes are taken away. They're done away with. And when moral absolutes are considered a relic of the past, I can guarantee you that belief in truth or the truth of the Bible will be often met and is often met with ridicule and derision. A Gideon was replacing a worn Bible in a local hotel and he noticed that someone had glued a label inside the Bible printed by a well-known atheistic organization. And it said, warning, thinking people have determined that this book is dangerous to the mental and physical health of everyone. Wow. Well, in Judges, we have come to this point where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is when you do away with absolutes. In this story, 
we have what seems to be so often the headlines of our papers. And so when we look at chapters 19 through 21, we're going to be looking at headlines, reports of wife abuse, blanket, blanket homosexuality, gang rape leading to murder, injustice, brother killing brother, kidnapping, and civil war. When evil isn't dealt with properly, it has a tendency to grow. And sin in the city of Gilead eventually infected the tribe of Benjamin and led to war in the land of Israel. Let's read in chapter 19, verses 1 through 2. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. Okay, we've got a problem there. He's emphasizing something where we've, we've read over and over again, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Also, when there's no king, we'll look at it in just a few moments, it kind of leaves you with the impression there's going to be chaos. That there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. And there was a, for a period of four months that she was away. Now, in the period of uh, Judges, the people often did not live. They did not live by the rules of what the Word of God had said. They wanted to do only what pleased themselves. And this final story describes the violence and immorality that prevailed in the land because of not living by the rules but doing what was right in their own eyes. And this basically amounts to what? Relativism. So the focus of the previous story was on the tribe of Ephraim and Dan. Now the focus turns to the Benjamites. A Levite once again plays a leading role, but this Levite is different. He is not pictured as being ambitious. He's just wanting to live in the hill country with his concubine. And so it seems that we are introduced to the village of Bethlehem also in this, this picture. So the writer was letting his readers know that the condition of the people of Judges in verse 1, was in chaos. He says, once again, now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, found in verse 25. The reason anarchy overwhelmed Israel was not that they had no earthly king, although they didn't at this time, but that they failed to submit to the authority of God's law, the king overall. And this happens with any of us. Today, at any time in history, if we fail to submit to God and his word and his authority, then chaos eventually takes over. When a thick moral fog settles upon a society as with Israel, the old moral landmarks begin to be obliterated, and no one seems to know the difference between right and wrong anymore. In other words, ethically and morally, the visibility is nil, and the people begin to grope for anything that will help them find their direction. Does it sound familiar in a lot of ways? It's very tempting at that time just to fly by the seat of one's pants when you begin to live by your own standard, doing whatever is right in your own eyes. And this is where Israel was. In chapters 17 through 18, we have spiritual anarchy, where in chapters 19 through 21, we have moral anarchy. In both passages, men are doing evil, gross evil, because it is right in their own eyes. As mentioned earlier, what we will see in these chapters is what we read as headlines in our papers today. 
when a society is filled with gross immorality, defended by suave, articulate, attractive uh, spokespersons, you scarcely find a perversion that someone is not willing to defend as essential to human freedom. And that's a a shame. So the first thing that we need to look at is a callous disregard for human rights. This is where it begins. The events of the story. We have a Levite we know nothing or very little about. We don't know about uh, his family, his name, or anything else. This Levite is content to live in a quiet place with his concubine. The problem lies with how he lived this life. Not that he wanted to live a quiet life. This Levite took to himself, it says, a concubine. And a concubine was not what we would call a mistress or a prostitute. That's a misconception. It, uh, she was considered a wife in biblical times, but she did not enjoy the status belonging to full marriage, so we don't know why he didn't take her in full marriage. He just took her as a concubine, a partner. And the practice, though, common was, and you'll find it in the Bible, with different godly men, it was not divinely approved. Because of her second-class status, she wouldn't necessarily uh, share in the family inheritance. And we know that sometimes when the wife was barren, that these men would take uh, concubines to be able to establish a family. And uh, men of God practice this action, as I said, Abraham, Jacob, Gideon, uh, Saul, David, Solomon. But this never meant that Uh, the Lord approved of this action. And so we can assume from this story that the Levite might have regarded his concubine um, more as property than a partner. And there's no talk of love, and so uh, we see him taking her as his concubine. And the Levite's concubine was unfaithful to him, and she was called a young girl Uh, or a girl uh, numerous times, and this could be uh, portraying that she was younger than him. But it says, but his concubine, in verse 2, played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for a period of four months. She uh, proved to be adulterous in her actions, and she left her husband. And this is very important. She went to be with her father because uh, during that day and time, if you were found unfaithful like that, you could be stoned. That was the law. And so it says she played the harlot, meaning that she had done this more than once. And she is also, as I said, repeatedly called a girl, which meant that she could have been younger than him and dissatisfied with him. I don't know. So she left the Levite and headed home, Bethlehem in Judea. Judah, where she remained uh, uh, under the protection of her father. As Leviticus 20.10 says, that she could have been stoned or the penalty for adultery was death. And the scripture tells us that she was there for a period of four months. Now, we're not given the reasons, but the Levite all of a sudden desires to go and get his concubine and to bring her home with him. Maybe the reason was because, uh, you know, uh, time makes a heart grow uh, fonder. I don't know. But anyway, uh, he goes after her. It says, then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So the girl's father, when he saw him coming and he presented this, uh, his um, Uh, reason for coming to him uh, he seemed to be delighted and he welcomed him in matter of fact he tried to get him to stay he kept on uh, adding days to his stay and after four days with the family on the fifth day the man was not willing to spend the night so he arose and departed it says in verse 10 so the Levite his servant and the concubine and Of course, the donkeys traveled about five miles after leaving there and before arriving in Jerusalem. 
Jabeth, or Jebus. And the servant suggested they uh, spend the night there in Jerusalem. The problem is, though, it was not an Israelite city, but an alien city. It was considered an alien city at this time. It had been taken by the Jebusites. And they were considered to be pagan uh, Amorite descendants. And so uh, the Levite felt it unsafe to lodge there. And the Levite and the others set out for Gibeah, which was just four miles south, or north, excuse me, of Jerusalem, uh, before stopping for the night. It says in verses 12 and 13, the master said to his servant, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. And he said to his servant, come and let us approach one of these places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So here we have them deciding to go on to a place that was more hospitable, or they thought to be that way. Here in America, if we see somebody standing out the outside the gates like they are to our subdivision, and they're staying there for a little while, and they have, uh, you know, uh, their, their luggage and all of this with them, we get suspicious, don't we? And we would probably call the police. Uh, and, but during that day and time, in biblical days, hospitality was one of the sacred laws of the East. In other words, no stranger was to be neglected. In Gibeah, no one, though, welcomed these strangers. No one opened their home to care for them. Not, at least it wasn't until we read that a man who had moved there from the hill country of Ephraim invited them into his house. Now, it wasn't that they were going to be a burden on somebody because they brought the, the food, they brought the uh, the feed for the, uh, the donkeys, everything. So they had prepared for the trip. So it wasn't that they were going to be, uh, you know, uh, luggage, excess luggage for some family to take in and, and to take care of. And it says in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 19, the old man said, peace to you, only let me take care of your needs. I, I don't care if you can take care of your own needs. I want to be or show hospitality. So you come in, I want to show that I care, and I'll welcome my home to you. However, do not spend the night in the open square. Come into our house. So he took him into his house and gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So they were enjoying some fellowship. The Levite's hospitality, though, was short-lived. The... Uh, uh, a sudden noise came to the old man's home. Men from the city loudly demanded the Levite be turned over to him. Now I want you to look at this in verse 22. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, sons of Beliah, that means worthless people, surrounded the house, pounding the door, what does that sound like? Sounds like over in Genesis, doesn't it? With Lot and the angels visiting him. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man saying, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. Now it's clear what their intent was. It's not me trying to make it up. To put it bluntly, these men were excited about a new man being in the city. And they wanted to have relations with him. The same demand was made of Lot when he entertained the angels in Sodom in Genesis 19.5. You see, this shows us something here that we need to be aware of. Absolutes come from God's Word. I know that our feelings enter in in a lot of different ways, and we hear the media and we hear a lot of things being uh, preached to us, and a lot of those things are contrary to the absolutes of God's Word. We must take the absolutes 
of God's word over what any society wants to change laws to. It must be that way. You see, this shows us how the moral cancer of the Canaanites had deeply penetrated the Hebrew society. Here was a Hebrew society that began to accept that kind of lifestyle when their laws did not permit this. The fact that they asked for the man lets the reader know what their intent was. Homosexual rape. From this passage, as well as from Genesis 19.5, one is made aware that the contemporary homosexual movement is not something new. I don't care what anybody says, it's not something new. Now people, we can take God's word and we can believe it or we can believe society and what they say about God's word. What does one do when a riotous gang of men come banging on your door wanting the person you have taken in as your guest? And especially wanting him specifically for rape. Let's look at the response of the host. And I want you to also look at the response of the Levite. Or the reaction of the Levite. The old man offers to hand over his virgin daughter. His virgin daughter. And the Levite's concubine or wife. It appears that the old man felt himself under sacred obligation to protect the Levite who had come under his shelter. Now I want you to look in verses 23 through 25. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not commit this act of folly. Here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may, what? Ravish them. And do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. Well, what happens? The Levite hears this, and he takes action. Inappropriate for a guest to do this, but he does it. Maybe he felt fear of the old man vacillating in his decision here. So he reacted by throwing his wife out to the men. So the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning. Then let her go at the approach of dawn. I want to tell you something. Everything has become twisted. But that's what happens when we listen and we live by rules of man instead of by the word of God. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so the host offer of the two women to satisfy the lust of the homosexual men plus the action of the Levite to thrust his concubine out before the gang of homosexuals was reprehensible I mean no way it was disgusting disrespectful distorting and perverted it should never have happened where how did they get to that point because every man did what was right in their own eyes things get worse the Levite doesn't seem to have any remorse or any regret what does he do he goes to sleep he goes to sleep and seems to get a good night's rest. Does he worry? Does he, is it a sleepless night? No. He goes to bed and doesn't get up until the next morning. And then when he wakes up the next morning, he gets ready to leave and he opens the door and there lays his concubine. People, I told you Hollywood doesn't have anything compared to this. And there she is. And maybe he thinks she's asleep. And we read in verses 25 through 28, but the men would not listen to him. So the, men, uh, the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning and then let her go at the approach of dawn. As the dawn began 
uh, as the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where she, the master was until full daylight. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, then, behold, his concubine was laying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. There she was laying up there like that. And, uh, and he said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. How hard a heart can you get? But you can. When you allow things to be right in your own eyes. Then he placed her on the donkey and the man arose and went to his home. How could a host act that way? How could a husband act that way? Let me share something. How do we get to that point? How can we act that way? Well, maybe... We think that we're more civilized today. But I want you to be very careful. You see, if we're not careful, we allow our sons and our daughters' minds and hearts to be violated by what they see and hear in movies like this, on television, and at some concerts. Chastity of minds and hearts is essential for chastity of body. So insensitive to the sanctity of sex and the responsibility of parenthood, the host offered his virgin daughter for gang rape. So insensitive to the sanctity of sex and responsibility of marriage and so un unconcerned about the laws of God that the Levite sacrificed his wife to save his own skin. If he thought he was punishing her for unfaithfulness, his punishment far outweighed her sin. Finding her dead at the doorstep, not feeling guilty, he put her corpse on one of the donkeys and headed home. But that's not the end of the story. Then all of a sudden he desecrated and mutilated her corpse by cutting it into 12 parts and sending one part to each of the 12 tribes of Israel what in the world was the reason for this he wanted mobilization he wanted not only mobilization but unification of the 12 tribes for revenge even though he was the one who had let them kill her rape her and kill her he wanted revenge for her death he was not taking any responsibility of his own for her death second point a careless flighty decision to right or wrong will cause terrible results the Levite got action the tribes of Israel called the assembly of at Mizpah uh, to investigate Judges 19 30 through 21 then all the sons of Israel from Dan to uh, Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah in Judges 21. Leaders from all the tribes of Israel assembled to take action against this gruesome, grotesque act. Except one tribe. What tribe was that? Benjamin. Verse 3. And also, in chapter 21, 8 through 9, Gabish Gib, uh, Gibeah did not participate either. The people hearing the case delivered a verdict and made a vow. The verdict, the men of Gibeah were guilty and should be handed over to the authorities uh, and, you know, um, and be slain or be tried. In Deuteronomy 13, 12 through 18. The vow, none of the tribes represented would give their daughters in marriage to the men of Benjamin, Judges 21, 1 through 7. So the indignation, however, in no way excuses the oaths, oaths the men, or the action that followed. 
in Judges 21, 1 and 5, the Israelites formally requested that the, uh, the Benjamin tribe hand over the guilty men for execution. There was no trial offered, guilty until proven innocent. We've heard that before. We know that they're guilty, but they didn't know all that went on, all the facts. The guilt didn't lie just with them. The Levite was guilty of thrusting his wife out to them also. The tribe of Benjamin, though, was unwilling to give the Gibeonites over, therefore, closing the door to any discussion or negotiation. And so what resulted from this? A civil war. The 11 tribes enlisted 400,000 men in their army, Judges 20, verse 2, while the Benjamites had only 26,000 swordsmen and 700 chosen men who were experts with slings in Judges 20, verses 15 and 16. And in Judges 20, verses 18 through 40, we have the details of the war. The first day, the Lord allowed the Benjamites to win and to kill 22,000 Israelites. Just think of all these lives that should never have had to be taken. The tribes wept before God and sought what to do. And again, they went to battle with the tribe of Benjamin. And this time they lost, it says, 18,000 men. So they come before the Lord a third time, and they cry out to God. And this third time they approach God, they fasted and prayed and wept. And the Lord answered their prayers this time, and not only told them to attack again, but also assured them, this is what they needed, assured them that this time they would win. And this time they did. And over 25,000 Benjamites were killed on the battlefield. Now, those who survived fled into the wilderness. Gibeah was taken, its inhabitants were wiped out, and the city was burned to the ground. And it says in verse 35, And the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel, so that the sons of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who drew the sword. There were 600 men, though, of Benjamin left. Now, you've got to remember, this is a tribe still of Israel. So these fled to the wilderness, but they, and they remained there for four months, it says in verse 47. It says in verse 48, the men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found. They also set on fire all the cities which they found. So they destroyed all their possibilities of reproducing, and they had made a vow to say, hey, don't have anything to do with them. We can't give their daughters to them. So they've just wiped out their tribe. Reaping the results, look in in Judges 21, 1 through 5. In uh, verses 1 through 4, it says, Now the Lord, or now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the uh, people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and lift up their voices and wept bitterly. They said, Why, O Lord, God of Israel, has this come about in Israel? Now they've had time to cool off. Now they made all these rash vows in anger. And now they know that they can't go back on it. But who are they blaming? God. They're not blaming themselves. Why has this come about in Israel? So that one tribe should be missing today in Israel. We're going to wipe them out. It came about the next day that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The zeal to see uh, justice done had led to some unnecessary rashness for their anger that burned against Benjamin. They had taken a solemn vow before the Lord to refuse all intermarriage with that tribe. In verse 5, then the sons of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? 
For they had taken the great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord in Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. In calling vengeance against Gibeah, they had sworn to execute any community that, that did not respond with the uh, delegation of troops. And the outworking of these two oaths led to further bloodshed. You see how sin, if we don't confess it, it just keeps on and keeps on and keeps on snowballing. In their zeal to punish Benjamin, and the thing about it is, it's not just amongst one person or two or three people, like with the Levite or, or whomever it might be. It's against, it ends up against a whole nation here. And the outworking of these two oaths led to further bloodshed. And in their zeal to punish Benjamin, they had put even the women and children to death. So what do they do now? All of a sudden, people woke up to what was going on. They began to cry and weep. They, and they basically, uh, you know, blaming God. Their first uh, generous impulse was to repair the damage by giving them wives. But how could they do that? Look in verses 6 and 7. And the sons of Israel were uh, sorry for their brothers Benjamin and said one tribe is cut off from Israel today what shall we do for wives for them who are left since they have sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage between a rock and a hard place they remembered they had made an oath that prohibited them from giving their daughters to this tribe rather than admit that they had been sinful and they had made a, a wrong vow they solved their problems in a typical cruel way, recalling their second oath. Look in verse 5. They checked the records and found a community that had not participated in the action. Just some little, you know, uh, thing that's, that's worked in there. Some little wording, just like today, you know, let's, let's find some little uh, clause in there. Some little wording where we can, uh, we can win the case. And they said... What one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord of Mizpah? And behold, no one had come from the camp from Jabez Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of this tribe was there. They did not ask why they didn't send any representatives to fight against Benjamin. They just sent an army, it says, of 1,200 to carry out their, their threat of execution. And what was it? To kill everybody except sparing only those young women who were marriageable. Whom they took as a peace offering to the remnant of Benjamin. And the congregation, it says, in, uh, in verse 10, the congregation sent 1,200 of the valiant warriors there, commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Gabish Gilead in the, uh, ed with the edge of the sword with the uh, women and the little ones, this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Gabish Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin who were at the rock of uh, Raymond and proclaimed peace to them Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the women whom they had kept alive from uh, from the women of Gabish Gilead yet they were not enough for them in other words they still had a problem they'd already killed all these people in this tribe needlessly just to give to solve a problem that they had created now they still had that problem so what could they do? They came up with another scheme. Another part of their reasoning. They did what was right in their own eyes. There was an annual feast at Shiloh being held. They informed the 200 Benjamites that they, if they hid near the place when the girls uh, started to dance, they could kidnap the young girls and take them home as their wives. And the tribe wouldn't be violating their oath because they wouldn't be giving girls at, to them as brides. So the girls would be taken, not given. And it was a matter of semantics. The 600 Benjamites 
with their brides returned to their inheritance, cleaned up the debris, and repaired the city and started life all over again. Disgusting to read, isn't it? How in the world could Israel practice such perversion? Well, better yet, it's not so much how we see it, but how does God look at it? How, what does God say about it? That's what they should have been concerned about. Not about what Benjamin might think or some other tribe or how they felt, but how did God feel? And what about us? How do we feel about our society? No, it shouldn't be that. The same thing today, how does God feel about it? Do we celebrate, does our society celebrate a lot of the same kind of living revealed in this kind of chapter in the movies? Outside the movies? To the farmer, as far as the men in Gibeah, rape was all right. To many people, rape is fine. To the farmer and the Levite in the house, homosexual rape was unthinkable, but other rape was acceptable. The men of Benjamin thought it was right to overlook sin and defend evil men. For Israel, revenge and retaliation was justifiable. Also, to solve the mess they had created for Benjamin by their own ways, they created schemes, whether justifiable or not, and they justified them in their own thinking. Now, people, in, when we're coming to the end here of this book, they didn't begin to worship Baal. It wasn't because of them worshiping Baal or any other god. It began by ignoring the law of God. Doing what was right in their own eyes. Not living by God's absolutes. This led a whole nation to, into a moral collapse. The interrelationship of, uh, of sin is vividly illustrated here. In other words, it began uh, with a weak conception of the holiness of God. They didn't see God as being the one who was in authority, who was holy, and who knew what was right for their lives. Notice that the acceptance of holy homosexuality was an evidence that the people had rejected the truth of God. I want you to turn with me real quick before we look at just one or two a few little principles here, but I want you to turn to Romans, in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, and I'm not going to read all the, uh, the chapter, but I want you to look in verses 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which was unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. But I want you to look on. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to the praved mind to do those things which were not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, now, you see, it's not just homosexuality here. Malice, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although, this is the thing about it, this is what was happening in, in Judges. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's what was happening there. When we lose our sense of holiness and greatness of God, 
we soon find ourselves in sexual sin. Then we, you know, lose our self-worth and we view people as things and treat them as commodities. And sin reduces us to a little less than animals, living as mere bodies with our humanities erased. Principles to ponder before we leave. First, the basis of moral behavior is of critical importance. What do I mean by that? Let me say it this way. Why you do what you do is as important as what you do. Why you do it. When we were growing up, why did you not commit, if you didn't, premarital sex? Why didn't you have that? i tell you why a lot of people didn't have it. My parents were not Christians until after I became a Christian. Well, my mom was, but they taught moral standards, but they taught me not to do certain things. My mom said, don't have sexual relationships until after I'm married because that's what is right. And you want a happy marriage, then do, you know, live that way. And also, Dad said, don't commit premarital sex because, or don't have that because you might get the girl pregnant. And if you get a girl pregnant, then you're going to end up, responsibility is going to be on you. Well, that's good. But now things have changed, haven't they? And a lot of people were brought up that way. Birth control and new acceptance of casual relationships has been accepted. So that's done away with people. That no longer stands in the eyes of many people. What is the argument for us today not having sex? What are we going to tell our kids if that's what we've been telling our kids? If the only reason for sexual purity is a fear of unwanted pregnancy... Obviously, sexual immorality is now entirely appropriate as far as the society is concerned. We, you know, we have ways to take care of that. Technology has done away with that problem. What am I trying to say? If our moral behavior is not grounded on moral absolutes in God's word, we will end up doing what is right in our own eyes. I promise you that. Second. Ethical relativism is degrading and dehumanizing. We are terribly confused as a society, ethically and morally. We have lost any basis of judging right and wrong. Our current motivation is do your own thing. You've heard that over and over again. Much of our music, television, movies, literature is concerned you know, is concerted to prove that the old standard of living, our values and all of that, no longer have any meaning today. And if we're not careful, we will buy into that. Third, theology and morality cannot be separated. I'm sorry. The only certain basis for morality is the character of God and the Word of God. And that's theology, people. Fourth, the alternative to moral failure is not legalism or asceticism but a personal dynamic faith in the Lord Jesus Christ it's not I've got to live this way these are the rules that I've got to live by and and you know I'll, I'll do this and and so I can't have any fun as a Christian baloney there's a lot of things that we can do our Christian faith though is not pleasure denying uh, life and, and, and negating uh, joy in a legalistic kind of life, the truth is just the opposite. It should set us free in the Lord. Help us to enjoy things, but live according to God. And fifth, we must internalize his values. In other words, don't just learn about his values. Don't just know them, but internalize them. Saying, God, you know what's right. And Lord, you've done this for a purpose. You made me this way for a purpose. And I believe that the joy that you have 
is for me to live this way. Now, I can't do it without your help. And Lord, I struggle at times. Doesn't mean that we're going to be, you know, exempt from temptation and, 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 and trials and, and things that come our way. It just means, and, and it doesn't mean that we won't fail at times. Unfortunately, we will. But it does mean that God is there. And when we do fail, what are we to do? We're to ask God forgiveness right away, right? You remember the little boy? It just keeps on multiplying. And sin will control you. The little boy went to visit his grandmother, he and his sister. You remember the story? And he was outside at grandma's house. She had a prize duck. He, was, he had a new slingshot. Boy, he was pulling it. Well, the duck just happened to wobble in front of him in, uh, in the woodpile where he was shooting his slingshot. Hit the duck, good shot. He didn't intend to, but he hit it, boom, killed it. What did he do? Well, he went and told Grandma, right? Nope. He hit it in the woodpile. Came in. They had responsibilities to do. What, did, what happened? Well, it was his turn, I mean, it was his sister's turn to wash dishes. What did she do? She said, no, you're going to wash dishes. What? I want you to wash dishes. No, I'm not. It's your turn. What were you doing at such and such time today? I was looking out the window. I saw what happened. So he did the dishes. Next day, he did the cleaning. Next day, she told him to do something else. And he just couldn't stand it anymore. He was convicted. He was controlled by her. He ran through the house hollering for his grandmother. She was upstairs. He ran upstairs. There she was in the bedroom. She said, what's wrong, Johnny? Oh, Grandma, Grandma, I'm sorry it was an accident. I killed your duck I didn't mean to and I hid it in the woodpile she said come over here John so they went over to the window upstairs and she said look out there what do you see and he said woodpile I was up here the other day I saw you I was just waiting on you to come to me and make things right. I had forgiven you, John. I was just waiting on you. That's the way God is. Man. But sin, if we lay hold of it, we try to hide it, it continues to get worse. And before we know it, what happens? We do what is right. Let's bow our heads.